preaching at other churches. Um, and hopefully uh, seeing different faces up here for the last two weeks was a good reminder, a good pointer to the fact that we are part of something that is really much larger than ourselves, much larger than just us here. Uh, and when I say that, I don't just mean our little tribe of Presbyterian churches. I mean all of God's people everywhere we are found. Um, it was good for me to be away and be at these other churches and be reminded that we are not alone as followers of Jesus and that we are not alone in mission together. So if you've been here, you know that each week we're looking uh, during this pastor swap at one part of that beautiful Trinitarian benediction at the end of Second Corinthians where the Apostle Paul says to his friends, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so this morning we're going to talk about the love of God the Father. So I'm going to read 1 John 4, uh, verses 7 through 12 for us. And you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible. Or you can just listen as I read from 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask really simply that you would be happy to use this word um, that's written, that we have just read and heard together to grow us in our apprehension of your great love for us in Jesus, that you would meet every one of us uh, in the places where we are today, those of us who feel close to you, those of us who feel far from you, those of us who are distracted um, by all kinds of things around us and in our own hearts. Just meet us and show us your love for us in Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. So <clears throat> I want to start by mentioning something that I uh, actually mentioned in a sermon about six years ago, um, and I still hear about it from time to time, this thing that I told you about myself. Um, and I think that I hear about it because it's something that a lot of people, my wife being chief among them, thinks is a little bit weird, and that is this. Um, I do not like real maple syrup at breakfast. I do not like real maple syrup at breakfast. It's not... Um, because the taste of it is off-putting to me. It's not. I love cooking with it. I know that maple syrup is made in small batches, and it requires a lot of human interaction, and there's a grading system that people get fanatical about. I know all of that stuff about maple syrup, and normally that would make it more attractive to me. And that's, I think the part about this is weird, um, and probably why it's been mentioned to me over the last six years. There's really only one reason that I don't like real maple syrup at breakfast, and that is that it is nothing compared to the alternative. I am a log cabin guy all the way. I like corn syrup that has been injected with artificial flavors. Um, I cannot explain it, and I'm not going to try to explain it. That's the way that it is. 
And so in my house at breakfast, um, the table is often set with two kinds of syrups, real maple syrup on one side, and what is referred to often derisively as daddy syrup on the other side of the table. And occasionally something awful happens. We'll be at the breakfast table, ready to thank God and dig in, and I'll look and I'll realize I haven't stocked up on the log cabin, and then I'm going to have to choke these pancakes down with real maple syrup on them. And every time that happens, I think the same thing. I don't think that I can do this. Because what good is a pancake without the one thing that really matters? Not much. And I mention that to you because in this part of John's letter that we just read together, I think John says something very similar. He tells the church that there is really one thing that matters. There is only one thing that matters. And if it is missing, there is a wildly significant problem that needs to be addressed. Here's how John puts it. Anyone who does not love does not know God. John tells his friends in the most straightforward way that he can, if the church does not love, they do not know God. If love is missing, if the one thing that really matters is missing, you might as well call the whole thing off. So that's what John is desperate for his friends to get. He is desperate for them to apprehend the love of God, to know what the real thing looks like when they see it, to be able to receive God's love, to be able to give God's love away. And at the heart of these three things is the towering and mysterious love of God the Father for people like us. So here's how John begins. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. It is a straightforward call to the church to love. Now, no one really knows why John wrote this letter. There's no one place in it where he says, this is the problem that I'm addressing. But if you read this letter from the beginning to the end, which would be a great thing to do this afternoon, it would take just a few minutes. I mean, if you read 1 John from beginning to end, it becomes very clear that there is a huge problem in that church, that they have been uh, uh, afflicted with a deep conflict and that people have left that church. And so what John is doing is he's writing to pastor the folks who are still there. And this idea, the idea that our personal relationship should be characterized by love, it comes up again and again and again in the letter. So much so that you have to wonder that if, if, if they had been loving each other this way, if that initial conflict, whatever it was, would have happened. If God's people had been ordering their common life around the kind of love that John is talking about, maybe he wouldn't have written this letter. We don't know, but what is crystal clear is that John is telling the church to order their common life around love. And you know, it's not like he's saying that this is one thing on a list of things that they might want to try to heal their hurt and their pain. He's not saying, hey, here's a bunch of options out there, and one of the things that you might want to try is love. He is saying that it is the thing. It is the only thing. It is the one thing needful for God's people. If they love, then all of the other particulars of their life will begin to sort out and take shape under that. Church, love is that important. It is the ordering principle of the Christian life. Love is the ordering principle of the Christian life. 
the whole New Testament says this. Um, you might remember what the Apostle Paul says. We hear these words around this time of the year during wedding season. His words that he wrote to the church at Corinth in chapter 13. He names a bunch of things that would be great. A bunch of things that would be great to have. A bunch of things that would be great to do. Paul talks about speaking in the tongues of men and angels. He talks about speaking in prophetic, having prophetic powers. He talks about the ability to understand all mysteries. Paul talks about having faith, faith that is so strong that it could even move mountains. And he says you could have all of these things and you could do all of these things and a hundred other great things beside them and none of it would matter at all without love. It is just a big, fat mess of noisy, clattering nothing without love. It would just be sound and fury signifying nothing. And so John, for his part, tells the church, here are two reasons why we ought to love each other. First, he says, because love is from God. He is the source of love. He is its genesis, its fountainhead. He is its author, and therefore he is the truest arbiter of what real love means. And since this is true, John says, then it follows that whoever loves is showing evidence that they know God, that they have been born of God. And the opposite also is true. John says, if we do not love, we give evidence that we do not know God. Now, I don't, I don't know how that sounds to you, but it is really unsettling to me. <laughs> I mean, if what John is saying is true, then it means that it's possible to have lots of gifts and have lots of talents. It's possible to do really, really great things out there in this world, and it's possible to carry on really, really well in life and get through on our competencies and our thoughtfulness and our creativity. It's possible to do all of those things and be completely devoid of the one thing that really matters. Remember in the gospel lesson that Rachel read, Jesus talked about this. He said, there's one thing that is going to let people know if you follow me. There's one thing in this world that people will look at and they will look at it and see that you are my followers. And it wasn't our talents and our gifts and our competencies and our creativity. It was not our thoughtfulness. It wasn't all of the great things that we can do. It wasn't all of the great churches that we can plant or the programs that we can throw together. Jesus said, here is how people will know that you follow me, if you love each other. So it's unsettling to me, not because I know in theory that it's possible to do pretty well in life without love. It's unsettling to me because I do it. I walk like that for long stretches of my life without love. And maybe you can relate, maybe you know what I mean. And so the good news for people like us is that this is precisely why John is writing these things, because he is holding out something more for us, he is holding out something better for us, he is holding out the life that we have been made for. So this is where he gets around to the second reason that we should love each other. It's really at the heart of what he means to say, and you can think about it every day for the rest of your life and you will not get to the bottom of it. It'd be good to try, but you won't get to the bottom of it. John says that we should love because God is love. God is love. 
That would be hard to overstate how strange this would have sounded into the culture that John is writing. I mean, because conceptions of God in the Greco-Roman world um, were honestly just as messed up and as weird as they are today. In the world into which John wrote, God was viewed as, you know, like Aristotle would, as God is pure intelligence or he's the good beyond being. These abstractions about God. And John waltzes into the, that world into which he is swimming and his people are swimming and into the world of the philosophers. And he says, you're off. God is love. That is who God is. He is love. He has bound himself to a people and he will be bound to them forever in love even when it costs him absolutely everything. That is who God is. And that leads John to paint this picture of what real love looks like. I mean, it's one thing to be told to love. It is another thing altogether to know what love really is. What is love really? I probably don't need to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Our, our world, the, the culture in which we live is really, really, really confused about what love is and about what it means to be the lovers that we were created to be. There are so many, so many counterfeits for love that are on offer. So many pernicious substitutes for love. So many dead ends that lead to all kinds of pain and sadness. So what is love really? Well, instead of defining it, John paints a picture of it. God is love, he says, and this is how we know it. The love of God was made manifest among us like this. And instead of lining out a textbook definition of love, he invites his friends to think about what it looked like when it came into their life and changed them forever. God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, John says, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's the picture that John paints. For John, love is fully and completely defined by the self-giving of God for his people. It is fully defined by the self-giving of God for his people. If you want to know what love is, John says, you do not need to look any further than what God did for his church. The Apostle Paul says it like this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John is just asking his friends to remember their own experience. Remember what it was like when God came to you in Jesus. And he gave them forgiveness. He, he gave them everything for their good and for their flourishing. He did it with patience. And he did it with kindness. And he did it with joy. And he did it without a trace of resentment. And church, this is the thing that love does for people like you and me. God has made people like us the objects of real self-giving love. So that we can begin to know it from the inside out. And it is the kind of love that we have been made for. You know, and I think a moment's reflection will help us to get to the place where we realize that being objects of this kind of love, it has real power and real possibility. You know, to those of us who are here this morning who are inclined for all of the hundreds of reasons that we're inclined to do this, to those of us who are inclined to believe 
that we need to do something to earn God's favor or to keep his favor, you know what we can do? We can stop believing that that's true because it is not true. We can rest in the fact that we have been loved in Jesus and that we are loved in Jesus and that we will be loved in Jesus forever. And you know what happens when people believe that? And I don't mean just believe it like, yes, I have it in my head, but believe it by living out of that. For the first time, maybe in our lives, we can actually love other people without making them earn it. You know how we do. We, we make people earn our love. We don't say it, but we only give love to the people who do what we want them to do and who act like we want them to act and who don't give us a hard time. We love people that we would like to hang out with and go to parties with. But if we are the objects of self-giving love, if we are being changed by that, we become people who are free for the first time ever to love others simply because they are. Simply because they are around us. And that is freedom. That's the kind of freedom we were made for. And you know, what about those of us who are here this morning who believe that we are unlovable? This many people in one spot, I can promise you there are many of us here this morning who believe that we are unlovable for whatever reason. Because of something that we have done, because of something that's been done to us, because of that thing that we can't shake, because of that addiction that has a grip on us. And we believe that we are unlovable. Well, here is the good news for people like us. God loves us. We are not unlovable. We have been made the objects of the white-hot, self-giving love of God the Father, and His welcome for us is as sure as it is wide. And we walk into it with the open hands of repentance and faith, and when we do that, and when we become objects, not just in our heads, but in our experience of that kind of self-giving love, it means that we can change. (laughs) We can become different people. There is hope that we can be renewed. So this is where John comes back to the place where he started. John often does this. He moves in circles. And he says, Beloved, if God loved us like this, we ought to love one another. And hopefully it's clear that John's ought here, we ought to love one another, isn't the ought of a finger wagging in our face telling us what to do telling us what's right. I mean, I've been the object of that kind of ought. I'm sure you've been the object of that kind of ought, and you know it has no power to change your heart. It never has and it never will. But because we have been made the objects of the self-giving love of God, we can hear this ought with hope and we can hear it with joy because that love is working in us, changing us, giving us the power and the perseverance that we need to love like we have been loved. And church, (laughs) this is precisely, (laughs) this is precisely what this world that is so desperately impoverished of real love needs. I mean, do, do we need another election cycle like this one? 
Right? Do we need to be a year on from this church shooting in Charleston or two weeks on from this shooting in Orlando? Do we need any more around us to show us that this world is desperately, desperately impoverished of real self-giving love? We don't need any more evidence. And that means, in part, that people like us need to practice showing love. We need to make a habit out of it. I mean that we need to practice self-giving love so that over time it becomes less and less like work for us and more and more our reflex in our families, in our workplaces, here, in our church, in our relationships. It becomes the reflex of who we are. We don't get better at our hobbies without practicing. We don't get better at our jobs, without practicing. And church, we do not get better at love without practicing it. Because love isn't some ethereal substance that's floating around in the air that we need to connect to. Love isn't a hole in the ground that we fall into. As I like to say, love looks like something. It looks like concrete, physical, red-blooded actions of costly service in the interest of other people. That's what love looks like. And you don't fall into that. You plan for it. And you seek it out. And when you find it, you do it. And when you do it, you get better at it. We get better at it together. And what happens when we do this is absolutely breathtaking. John says, no one's ever seen God. That's a hallmark of his theology says the same thing at the beginning of his gospel. He says, no one's ever seen God, but Jesus makes him known. And even though that's really mysterious and hard to get to the bottom of, at least there's a logic to it. Of course, Jesus makes God known. But that is not, that is not what John says here. In a million years, you'd never expect to hear it, but there it is in black and white. No one has ever seen God, John says. But if we love each other... If we love each other, then God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, just like Jesus revealed God to a watching and hurting and broken world, so do we. That is our job now. In fact, as we love each other, as we love our neighbors, God's love abides in us and his love is actually perfected in us. And we become his presence in the world. You can hardly understand it. (laughs) That God would use people like us to do something like that. But there it is in front of us. And church, it is completely true. And it is the only hope for a hurting and broken world. So here's my prayer. My prayer is that God would do whatever it takes to grow us in our apprehension of his love and in our experience of his love and that he would do it for our good and for the good of this world around us. Let me pray. Father, I just pray that, that you would use whatever means you have as we're gathered here together, as your people, as we're off doing our jobs, as we're in our homes or with our friends. Father, that you would use whatever means that you have that we need to show us again how deeply you love us in Jesus. 
that we would come to the place where we can say with great conviction, not because we've read it on a page, but because we know it in who we are, that you are love. Do this so that we would be changed and so that your love could be perfected through us in this world. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.